When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And if you're new, welcome. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe. We have new episodes coming out every Monday. And if you've been around for a while, make sure to hit us up on Instagram and Facebook. If you have a band that you want us to talk about, send it to us there. And then finally, if you are a lover of good music, make sure to go in the description of the episode. There's a Patreon link there. Become a patron, you get episodes early, and special access to um, our bonus segment, which is the Bad Music Podcast, which sadly we're not doing today because it's a special episode, but normally we will look at the six worst songs from the artist that week, and we'll kind of, you know, have a little fun. Uh, (laughs) Whenever you talk about good music for a long time, sometimes it's nice to let loose and get a little casual and talk about bad music sometimes. But anyways... Special episode this week, Lucas, tee us up. All right, so we have returned to our uh, music history sub-series. Yeah, I miss it. Whenever we don't have it, I miss it. Yeah, I mean, we we do always have it in our scheduled time slot. The uh, For those of you that are new or haven't been keeping up, the last episode of every month we dedicate to this uh, little series. And it's, it's been so much fun. It's been really cool to see just like how music has changed over the years and seeing the uh, the invention and the progression of all of the musical ideas and the devices that we take for granted. And um, like chords. It's really, yes. <laughs> and melody. <laughs> yeah. And instruments. Yeah. And very recently, instruments. So um, this has been a really cool series. So this is going to be our second and final uh, episode in the, uh, well, kind of last episode in the Renaissance period. The next one we're going to do is like a transitional episode. Mm. It's like mm. it's neither Renaissance or Baroque. It's kind of like the the thing that ends the Renaissance and starts the Baroque as far as music is concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, but this week we are going to be talking about the secular music of the Renaissance period, and we're going to be talking about a mode of music called madrigals. Okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> a madrigal is a uh, a vocal 
music composition. So this actually has no instruments. Um, it, it can have instruments, but it's like usually not the norm. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that defines it is that it is secular. There are no religious madrigals. Are we still okay? So are we still? I know last time that we were kind of talking about um, the Renaissance. Can you, for people that missed the last episode, can you kind of tee up why specifying that it's secular music is important? Yeah. So the Renaissance is really when the secularization of the Western world really began to take effect. Um, The Catholic church was losing a lot of the power that it had over Europe and the uh, the wave of humanism was spreading throughout the civilized world at that time, as well as a rediscovery of all of the art and literature and music and theater of um, the ancient Greek and Roman worlds, the ancient world, and just this 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 idea of man being able to accomplish great things that man doesn't have to wallow in the mud of religion. Uh, religion was still very important to most people of that time. We hadn't re- yet reached the point to where people were speaking out against religion, but they were finding that um, that man could be celebrated instead of something to be shamed and to be controlled. I think you said it really well in the last episode. I think you said something like in the in the middle ages it was like oh how like we fall so short of how awesome god is and so it's like very despondent and then in Mm -hmm. the renaissance they were like oh we're god's creation and so we're magnificent beings you know Uh we are instead of instead of we are god's mistake we are god's greatest creation yeah so um yeah so because of that there was this tremendous leap forward in civilization. Um, this is when we had all of the all of the great painters that you typically think of, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, uh, Donatello, all the Ninja Turtles come from uh, <laughs> come from this period. Um, you have the great explorers. This is the time that America is discovered. Um, you have Magellan that is the first person to sail completely around the world to circumnavigate it, if you will. Um, You have the first, you know, major trades being set up with Asia and a lot of technology coming because of that. Um, I found out recently that coffee actually comes from Asia originally. Mm. So, so they discovered that during the Renaissance, which I'm very grateful for. And you said that the um, Renaissance, you said, is like 1420s to 1580s. Um, I would say it is. I would actually say it's 1420s to about 1620. So it's about a 200 year okay. period. Now that I've started a little bit of study of the Baroque period, I was able to get a bit of a clearer definition on that. So with secular music, I guess how is the secular music? that's happening now different from because at the end of the middle ages i remember you saying like kings and queens would like hire the oh darn it i forgot the name of them the awesome name for all the musicians that oh, oh um, troubadours. troubadours 
Yes, the Troubadours. So how is this that music one. that's happening now different from what the Troubadours were doing? So the Troubadours were kind of like, um, they were almost like your, your, your traveling gunslingers, where it was just like they, they didn't really have lots of formal training for the most part. Of course, you did have your, um, your mass writers that would occasionally dabble in if they wanted to kind of like have an outlet to really um, do something that's not restricted to what the Catholic mass had to be. But for the most part, these were just kind of like, they were, they were guys that were first off on the run and had to kind of have a life of secrecy. So because of that, they couldn't like really go to any of the formal music training schools because that was all very extensively, held by the church mm. you know because in the middle ages it was banned to pl- have any music go on outside of the church and so because of that you only learned music in the church that changed in the renaissance now you could uh go and study and learn music and that was actually started to become a part of you know your every man uh schooling process in the same way that we do now where you know, kids go through school, they usually take one or two mandatory music classes. Yeah. And so um, the Renaissance is when that started to become available, as well as uh, with the printing press being invented, you had the ability to start recreating music. And so not only could the everyday person learn music, but they could also have access to music. They could practice in their own homes. Now, you know, not to say that everyone could learn, you know, this was still more for privileged classes. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the peasant farm workers are not going to have access to this. But as we talked about in the previous episode, one of the maybe the most important uh, invention of the Renaissance is the middle class. Yeah. And right. so the middle class started to be able to have the ability to learn music for themselves so because of that you start to have these more um more of these songwriters being able to learn music and then uh, be able to openly create whatever music they wanted to make and so we have this this larger uh range of expression in music as well as you know, we we do start to have what we call amateur uh, or casual songwriters. So people that don't just, um, you know, it's not just the people that go to school and, you know, get these fancy degrees to learn to write and play music. You start to have like, you know, the equivalent of, you know, a DIY, someone making their own album in their yeah. bed. So that brings me to my next question. So let's say... I'm Ethan, but I'm I'm Renaissance Ethan, and I'm a songwriter. Like, what do I do? Hello, Renaissance Ethan. What do, what do I do now? I have, you know, I want to write a song. I have, I have this great idea. How do I end up? How do I make it big in the in the Renaissance age? So, for the most part, you have to have a patron. You've gotta you've gotta curry the favor of some noble or dignitary, so that way they can fund your music and give you a job. Uh, so they're, we're still kind of in that mode. Oh, like, and we will be for well, we will be for a long time. Like we talked about in our Beethoven episode, that that was 
mostly the way that music was being done. Really, you could say that this is the starting to really be the beginning of that. So music wasn't like you couldn't write a song as a hobby. You could, but there was a good chance that no one would hear it. And this isn't like like and like what instruments were available at this time to even be played. So you have a lot of the instruments that were being used in the uh, the Greek and Roman world. Probably a lot of them were being rediscovered as part of the Renaissance revival. You have your uh, you have your lutes. You have your 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 primitive versions of violins and cellos. Um, your your primitive. I say primitive, as in this is prehistoric, but like you know the the early versions. Yeah. The Baroque period is really when we kind of see this the cementing of the instruments that we all know and use today. So I could I could write a song on my lute and go play at like a local bar. Yes, you could. This the again the the problem and the the downside to then as opposed to now is you know yes we had the ability now to um to reproduce music on paper but it was still not optimized yet you couldn't just you know no random joe off the street could go to the printing press and say hey will you make 500 copies of my song they're going to be like well who are you what have you who have you played for who's your patron who's going to sponsor this and so it was like most of the amateur musicians, like their music doesn't exist today mm. because you know, they didn't have the ability to be able to recreate it. It was, it was, it would be purely for hobby and for self enjoyment and for the enjoyment of the, of the, the, the small audience that you uh, acquire. Did, did that ever happen? Uh, I'm sure it did, but we don't. Again, have we just, yeah. I mean, we just we don't really have the records of it. So was was there like a standout Renaissance um, secular writer? Yes, and he's actually going to be uh, not only brought up twice in this episode, but he's going to be the center of our next episode. Ooh, so he what he's what brings us into the next whole phase. Yes, um, his name is Claudio Monteverde. So what makes what's his story? So Claudio Monteverde uh, was born in the mid 1500s, and he started off as a uh, as a church composer, as a lot of people did. Now it was kind of like the church composer was kind of like your your quick way to kind of gain notoriety. Yeah. Well, and it was still the main way that you could get taught, probably. Uh huh. And so he was. Uh, he he wrote pretty much just about every type of music that you could write at that time, and was really really good at it. Uh, he is Italian, and he uh, just started to uh, produce songs, and the really the big. Uh, break that he had was, and what what is going to be the center of our next episode is that he wrote the first opera. Ooh. Wow! Oh. 
and it's it is the it is the the creation of that now there's a little bit of a asterisk to that it's not technically the first opera but it's the first actually decent opera okay there was an opera that came before it but it's usually regarded as terrible and no one plays it so someone someone had the vision just lacked the execution yes where monteverde came in and was just like this is it and that's what i'm actually in the middle of researching right now and it's pretty freaking great (laughs) and i'm not someone that's like a uh an opera snob where i'm just like oh yeah i I know the finer points of opera. I'm I'm pretty new to it. And so, and I'm just like, man, this is like, you can tell that, you know, stuff just got ramped up here. Mm -hmm. That it's, it's no wonder that that is the moment that kind of the Baroque period begins. The, the first truly all around great, um, musical movement. Where it's like we have these these compositions that even the the average listener that doesn't know much about music will recognize. Uh, I gotcha. This is the Toccata and Fugue Four Seasons, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, where we are the Pachelbel's Canon and right, and where we are uh, now, I mean, even this, none of the songs from this point in music history are recognizable. No, I would say the only song at this point that in all of our music history episodes that anyone would have recognized would be Ave Maria. Well, if you were a Catholic, maybe you would have known some of the Catholic mass stuff. Yeah. But as far as, as far as just like your normal person that is not a, uh, is not a music student. Yeah. You know, they're not going to go, oh, I've heard that before. Yeah. Because even still, a, uh, lot of, a lot of modern day Catholics don't like, they don't have that kind of Catholic mass. That That's, 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 uh, that's considered a little more old, even though it is done. It's definitely considered old school. Ah, uh, yes. This is the Hurrian hymn. I remember <laughs> that being on the radio when I was four years old. Oh yes, that great Terra Tantera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's not to say that the music of this episode is really bad. I'm really excited to talk about it. I mean, we still have a lot more to talk about the era, but um it's good to have like a very clear structure whereas a lot of that ancient music that we went through like it was kind of it was very stream of consciousness based on but... feel, man. You got to feel the music. It, yeah, you got to get back to those I mean, yeah, old, actually. those old school days where we just felt the music. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but here it it, it start it feels more composed. It's very much. I'm glad that you pointed out that um, you know this episode is of the same era as our previous episode because it does. From my understanding, it sounds like it's progressing through history. Mm-hmm. Our set and. And, you know, we can talk about that later, but you see this very quick um, sophistication with the writing through this this short period of time. Yeah. And it's, it's it gets to the point where 
it starts to become almost indistinguishable with musical ideas of today, which is really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is kind of the first time this group of songs are going to be looking at where you listen to it and you're just like this, like you I, you feel like you can hear a lot of what is being done today. Yeah, yeah. Like there's, it feel they feel less like like music compositions and more like songs. Yeah, they they don't feel as um, dated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or even if they feel like compositions, they still feel like something that, like, you'd go to the Performing Arts Center and, like, whatever composer that's big for this year just wrote this song, listen to it, you know? And and you could put on one of these songs in particular that I'm sure me and Ethan are both thinking about that fits that, you know, very modern way of thinking about music whereas you know in the last episode we got very very close to modern i think that by the time we get to the baroque period it's going to be pretty much the same as a lot of the music you would hear being composed today Mm -hmm. yeah and uh we have a very big uh a very big moment in this where we're going to actually have some songs that are in English. Yes. There we go. Which is a big deal. So what is that about? Why not? Um, So the, uh, one of the big differences and we, and this is, this is similar in the way that the troubadour music was to the music of the high middle ages is that, you know, it's, it's written in the native language of of the writer and listener, so it's where we don't have to sing in Latin. Um, they can they can sing in their own language, and it's meant for everyone to understand and to enjoy. Gotcha. So yes. we just at this point we have some people that some composers from England that are writing uh, madrigals for English listeners. Mm-hmm. Which okay, is pretty so exciting because like I don't have to. I don't have to uh, translate lyrics. Every translate. song, only two of the songs are in English. This but... also kind of brings up, I think, in in our last episode, we were just. I remember we were with the church music specifically. We were talking about, uh, again, I'm bad at music vocab words. Whatever the term is for, like really drawn out syllables of words. Mm-hmm. Like. And then, it, like the church was like, "We'll keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter." And then it seems like we're here in the Renaissance secular music, and it's like, I mean, even like lyrically, spacing wise, we're not like just taking years on, like, you know what I'm saying? Uh huh. We're not taking five years to go to the next syllable. Yeah, those melismas are not as long as they used to be. It, they still exist, though. But I, I mean, feel it, like they exist not very much differently than they would exist now, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. It is weird to hear them in English now, though. Yeah. It took me off guard, especially the first song. I was just like, oh, we're... This is this is happening. We're here. Yeah, we did yeah. it, guys. We learned English. <laughs> we're on the map. English was just created, we're yeah. We're on the map. So, but yeah. That was an that was an interesting development. And I guess you know it's not that the 
church is mandating that these songs be composed. And so it's not mandated that they're in Latin, which is great because now people can have songs that they can actually understand. Mm -hmm. Speaking of things being mandated, though, if they if these people still had patrons, how did that relationship work? Did the patron be like, write a song about this? Like, did it change per show? Was it just kind of like a, a um, an in-house servant, but they were just the music person? Like, how did this work? Well, so it kind of depends. There, a lot of times if there are um, specific um, events that you're like, hey, you know, write something for the coronation of such and such king or queen, then yeah, the the lyrics will need to be of that vein. But that wasn't incredibly common uh a lot of times it was just like you know they were they were just paying them the right good good music that's nice you know write write something that we're all gonna like that's that's good so instead of like what was seen i guess in art at the time where it was like mm -hmm. paint a picture of me yeah i get that Okay. So yeah, they could they had a little more freedom and you know, but at the same time they had to, they couldn't just write wacko weird stuff. They had to you know, there's still not even though we're talking about how much freedom there is at this point, it's still not near as much freedom as we would continue to get as we move further through uh the time periods. We don't have Prague yet yeah we're not we're not you know getting wacky experimental yet our progress on yeah uh-huh but you know they they had to definitely make sure that you know the that the people they write it for are gonna like it and that's you know that does have its own parameters but you know there there's not as much restriction as there is in catholic mass where you have to have the same lyrics every single time and there's there's limitations on what kinds of songs you can pull melodies from and you know you have to do them in this order and you know there's there's a lot more boundaries where with the madrigal there's less boundaries i think that with the madrigals that we have here you can notice that it's kind of like pop music today where like it thrives off of being both fresh and familiar right so you know whereas more extreme genres thrive off of being different and wacky it's like the the madrigals here are very much what you would expect you know for the most part from this era you know mm -hmm. even from the baroque era i would say like you know me being a un um educated person in the history of music basically only knowing what what we've learned from uh, this series and me in eighth grade right <laughs> this is what i would expect for about this era in history but that doesn't mean that it's like necessarily dry like the composition's still good it's still kind of fresh but it's still very familiar and so it's kind of like pop songwriting in a way Hmm. How interesting. I don't, I don't. I don't know if you had any any 
connections, like, or any reasons why that might seem that way or not. Well, I mean, this music is definitely written for the masses. You know, this is this is meant to entertain. Um, but when you get into the lyrics, there there is a lot of um, you know, there is a lot of poetry. So it's not like they're just phoning in lyrics of just like these is, you know, this is just meant to fill a quota or something. Ooh. So do we get, do we get because some octavarian moments in here? Um man, that's that's a tall order. I, I can't promise <laughs> me octavarian. But some interesting little puzzles, I guess. Yeah. And definitely, nice. they're definitely more depth. I mean, we're we're kind of getting used to that at this point. If you right. remember our Troubadours episode, we were kind of yeah. like, "Whoa, yeah," looking at yeah. some of the some of the words they were they were using there. Another um, aspect of uh, madrigals is this musical device called word painting, where mm. because of the fact that the lyrics are starting to take a much larger uh, role in the music because, again, the fact that we've got um, we have lyrics being written in a way that everyone can understand. So now we have a greater emphasis on making sure that everyone can understand the words. They use this device to uh, have the music and the words work together. There's a song that we'll talk about later in the set where they talk about running down a hill, and as they're doing it, they're going run, 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 like kind of like making the music sound like running. Okay, that's kind of cool. Or um, if they're talking about someone uh, crying, weeping, then the the vocal will. M- Will have this weeping quality to it. Mm. It's it's kind of like you know the uh, the equivalent of um, Meshuga. Um, I was I was gonna say something like you know you have a uh, you have a song about motorcycles and you have a you know a, an an engine revving with the instruments, like uh-huh. using having the music and the lyrics like actually work together to create a very specific sound or feeling nice. um, think think of Panama whenever it's doing it's it's doing the breakdown uh, and it's getting a little bit hot tonight and Eddie Van Halen is making his guitar going like mimicking the the car mm-hmm. sound mm-hmm. It's I, that, I thought it's, that was an actual car it, I'm pretty sure that that's his guitar making that sound. I got to learn how to do that now. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I would honestly be disappointed if you if it wasn't. Uh, he there was a mention of um, them sampling one of his actual cars in that song, but I don't remember where it was. But even still, they're they're even still, yeah. They're using um, they're using sound effects and other musical ideas to. Um, to reinforce what the lyrics are saying to where it's not just we're going to put this random tune over these words there's yeah. they're going to be they're going to be connected more than just happening at the same time yeah um, it's important if if you're going to write a musical puzzle 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I was just trying to think of other examples, like uh, in Steve Miller's The Joker, having his guitar doing that. Wow. Oh, yeah. So it's it's stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You can really trace it all back to madrigals and this idea of almost creating puns in the music where the music itself is demonstrating what the lyrics are telling you. Puns. Now, this this gets really it's easier with the songs in English because I can, it's easier to hear that exact m- word yeah, and hear what it's doing. I can't really give you a, a, a whole lot of explanations when we get into the, to the not English ones, just cause it's, it's hard to pinpoint where the lyrics are in accordance with where they're saying it in the music. But in the, in the songs where it's English, it's, it's a lot easier to tell when they're doing it. Hmm. So that's a, it's another uh, it's it's again there there's things like that where it's like we we take it for granted because it's it's almost overused now. Yeah. Where where it's ex, it's expected for you to make it more subtle mm-hmm. or you're hoping for it to be more subtle. Yeah. It's it's definite it definitely feels in these songs like they've just had this new idea and they're really excited about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Not. that's that's another thing to thank Madrigals for. Interesting. Um, so, to clarify, Madrigals are secular acapella music. Yes. Just period, or like. Is there anything else that is... Um, they're usually not ever performed by a, uh, a lone vocalist. It's usually a group. So would you... What distinguishes that from like a choral performance today? Because there's usually not more than six. Uh, oh. So like... Would a Stick. barbershop quartet be performing a madrigal? Yeah, you could say so. Wait, really? Yeah, that's that's probably where that 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 tradition comes from. So okay, I thought it was like there were more parameters, but I guess it's like this is just this is like a type of music now that will forever exist. Yeah, I mean, obviously, people don't call it madrigals anymore, right. but that's you can absolutely stem you know, that style of music back to here. Wow. That's but yeah, it's, it is different from say like a, a 50 person choir. They, they cannot perform magicals cause that's too many voices. Oh, but the blend, the blend. Oh, <laughs> I'm not saying it's not good. It's just not a magical. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Don't worry. We will, we will deal with <laughs> uh, those massive choirs when we get to the Baroque period, when we talk yeah. about hand- we talk about handle. Yeah, there was a lot of handle in um, in these songs. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that they were very inspirational to him. Yes, well, you know, being of the of the same or adjacent time periods, it makes sense. As well as the same country, handle was uh, English. But oh. I mean, I mean, he lived most of his life in England. He was born, I think, in Germany, but pretty much is English. The things you learn on the Good Music Podcast. Yep. English was his 
uh, main language, and so all of his choral works are in English, and that's why it's why it's his piece is is used at every king and queen coronation. Gotcha. Well, that would make sense as to why Hallelujah is in English. Yep. I just always thought it was <laughs> translated. Nope. That's that is the uh, some reason I thought it was, it was made in. But oh well. The things you learn, man. All right. I don't think I have any more pesky questions. Same. I'm ready for the songs. All right. So we're going to take a small break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about the madrigals of the Renaissance, and now it is time to get into the six songs segment of this episode. So, Lucas, what do we mean by six songs? So, normally in a uh, normal episode, we use the six songs as a way to talk about the artist, to you know, talk about why they're important, to kind of get concrete with them as well as we are using it as a way to introduce you to the artist if you are unfamiliar with them. I have a feeling that most of you guys listening are probably pretty unfamiliar with Renaissance madrigals, so in a way it's still uh, serving that function, but instead of introducing you to a band or an artist, we're introducing you to a genre from 600 years ago. Or 500 years ago. 600? Eh, who knows? 600 to 400. <laughs> um, so, not only am I picking uh, the songs to represent the genre, but I'm also uh, sequencing them and putting them in a order that is going to give them an emotional flow to have the songs transition well off of each other and eventually when you get to the end you have hopefully a cathartic experience so the way that you can go listen to these songs is there's a link in the description of the episode that will take you to a spotify playlist that has not just the songs from this episode oh no so much more all the songs from our previous episodes as well so make sure that you go check it out please do not listen to this entire episode and not listen to the songs. That would be so sad. Mm-hmm. You'd be missing out on so much. Yes, indeed. Okay. So I think we'll go ahead and get right into it with uh, probably the most upbeat song we have had in this series so far. <laughs> yes. And Wishes. that is... My Bonnie Last She Smileth. Well, it does have smile in the name. So there's that. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, it would be it would be uh, weird if this was a, a you know, a ballad. I mean, it act it, it is a ballad in the more traditional sense, but ballad didn't mean slow song back in the day. It was just it, it, it just meant song. <laughs> like that was just like kind of a it meant that it wasn't like meant to be like some big, you know, masterful symphonic work. It's just meant to be a normal song. Mm-hmm. So, ballad song. It, yeah. I think it's a great way of 
like I don't mean to diss on this song, but I think this is a great way of describing it. It's very baseline for what you'd expect of the period. Uh-huh. Right. It's very nice. It's normal. It stays in major. It kind of just floats around. And uh, I guess that's a good way of putting the, the lyrics, too, is they're kind of floating. They're kind of bouncy. Mm-hmm. So um, is this one of those songs where it's kind of uh, puns with the music and the lyrics? Um, I think it's, you know, it's the idea of... Because, I mean, again, we, we're not really... If you look backwards, it's like, again, we t- kind of take this for granted. To have a song that has happy lyrics, have happy-sounding music. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we look at our... Um, our Gregorian chants mm-hmm. and our even our ancient music we could ha- we had all these songs that like the lyrics and the music did not really match up mm-hmm. the moods didn't necessarily mix mm-hmm. um so it's um i don't believe that there's any overt ones it's it's really our next song where we get to have a lot of the really uh mm-hmm fancy word painting right right um so i think in this though we we have this we have this mood and this feeling that we haven't had before in this series where it's just like and i and i thought that it would be a shock to you guys to turn on the first song and then all of a sudden just hear english words yes it was it it kind of did throw me for a loop I was expecting everything to be in Latin again. Yeah, or some other language. like Or, or French or German, but we got English. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still very, like, a proper English. I don't talk like, you know, or they don't talk like the rootin' tootin' American way or whatever. But it's like, it's English. Like, you can understand what they're saying. It must have been really easy to write lyrics back then because whenever you end all your words with like smileth, you know, looketh. With, yeah. <laughs> it was very, very low hanging fruit for, for rhymes back then. <laughs> yeah. Brutal. You would have been a great uh, critic back then. Be like, why? Ooh, writing, rhyming smileth and beguileth. Very original. Well, smileth mean, and beguileth. You could, yeah, smile and beguile. It was great. Yeah, so why not smile and beguile? It's just so. I get you. I get you with smile and delight. Those things don't fit. But smile Smile and delight. There you go. You got a madrigal on your hands. Mm -hmm. So this song was written by a man named Thomas Morley in 1595. What do we know about him? Um. He is an English composer, obviously, hence the uh, um, the English words. He Definitely. actually he uh, he attended what was called the English Madrigal School, so he uh, actually got to have a formal musical education, specifically in writing madrigals, and as well as like whenever people talk about schools back then, it also means it's like that's like the like the the place where all of the music is being written mm-hmm. kind of like how you have your uh, your brill building 
or your Tin Pan Alley in America where like you just have this these buildings full of songwriters on every mm-hmm. floor that are just writing songs 24/7. Mhm. And so um so he was a, he was a part of that school and um he was considered to be the foremost English composer of his time. Ooh. So, but I would say still English was not on the forefront of a lot of art at that time. Mm-hmm. Everything was definitely more centered around um, France and Italy. Although, again, you had Shakespeare going on during this time. So you can't uh, say that they had nothing. But, right. you know, when people were doing stuff in England, it wasn't like, changing the world yet mm-hmm. you know it's not it, they weren't doing Beatles level uh, stuff mm-hmm. so but you know for being the foremost in your country that's still you know no small yeah. accomplishment that's true I mean have we ever gotten to be able to say that we're the best in our country at something <laughs> individually uh, yeah well, you could just declare your own country and just be like, hey. Oh, so simple. Huh? Yeah, well, well, you know, there's, 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 there's things in the micronation. Hmm. Whatever you say. I'm saying it's possible. There are many there are many nations around this time. Prussia hadn't taken over most of Germany, so there were a lot of best in their countries at this time that probably weren't that good. But the best in England, right, England was still unified for the most part, right? So being the best in England is still nothing to scoff at. No. Um, so we have this interesting little uh, vocal refrain here. The, these fa-la-la-la-las. Um, mm-hmm. I... I mean, obviously, whenever you hear Falafaz, you think of uh, Deck the Halls. Right. And it's – it's I, I don't know if this song served as the lyrical inspiration to Deck the Halls and its famous <laughs> Falala, uh refrain, but it's definitely impossible to not uh, consider it. It did come first. It did come first. And even just the overall feel of this song, it has a very Christmassy vibe to it. Yeah, it, you're it, right. feel, it feels very carol-y. Yeah. Like, like you, you, turn, you turn on the Music Choice Christmas channel and this would be on. Uh-huh. Or, or those pesky people that knock on your door and just you start know, we, singing. We don't, we don't get those people. Yeah, this but. never happened to me. Well, I'm not saying it's happened to me either, but it has happened to people. I feel like that's like a an OG Christmas movie stereotype that no one can relate to, <laughs> but everybody knows. It's like, oh yeah, the, those I hate carolers. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean nobody is like I've never caroled. I mean, I guess Dry Gulch sometimes had carolers. Oh, Dry Gulch did have carolers. It's nostalgic. Well, Dry Gulch really doesn't count. That's not a real place. True. You're right. Not anymore. <laughs> it's not a real place. It was its own micro country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I bet, I bet there was a greatest composer of Brygolds, too. There was. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was on the move. <laughs> it was me and Lucas. We were the greatest composers of Brygolds. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Man, we, I'm curious what, I mean, it, it seems pretty obvious, but can we do some lyrical analysis on My Body Last She Smileth? Um, this is one of the ones where I, from what I can tell, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, about eighty percent of your lyrics are fa la 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 laws. Yep. Um, I. Th- this is kind of one of those songs where it's like, you definitely feel like the melody is is the foremost component. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it's kind of like you know. You've got your, uh, you've got your, your simple words, and your follow laws, and it's like there's 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 a great deal of work done into the vocal melody, like the way that it bounces around. And it's like you can tell that that's kind of where where the portion of the work went into in composing this song. So I don't think there's really a whole lot we can divine from the lyrics on this one. But that'll be a uh, an exception to this episode. So as far as we know, it's just a person is like, oh, whenever, you know, the, the girl that I love smiles, I just get really happy. Yeah. All right. That's what, fine. What, one of the continuing themes that I like, and I think we've seen this before, is the flat five accidental. And in this context, it makes it sound almost anthemic, right? A lot of national anthems, especially the United States national anthem, uses the flat five to kind of put you in a Lydian mode, kind of like a hopeful um, sort of like reverence. But at this at this tempo, it sounds very like because it's during the fa la 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 la, so it sounds very playful, very innocent. It's because yeah. they go to that major two. True. So that flat five accidental. True. True. So they can they can do the flat five accidental in a way that we don't see it today. Today, yeah. the flat five accidental is used in like metal mm. contexts. You know, for example, Black Sabbath, right? Um, you got some blues flat flat fives. Well, blues not and that's not as common in modern music. Like even some like rap will use the flat five in a very sinister manner. Yeah. I've I've, I've heard it done. So, um, but yeah, it's just, that's, that's an interesting thing that I'm looking forward to seeing where that change is. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's very late in the, in the 20th century, but even if there's some inkling of it beginning, that'd be, that's something that I would, be looking out for personally that's my only little tidbit that's my music theory tidbit of the episode <laughs> well okay there's more in, in, a, in a later song but it'll we'll take a while to get there i i also like in this song there's kind of a meter change Ooh, you know, i know what you're talking about yep yeah and it like you know it just kind of switches back and forth between this like weird like waltz feel versus this very straight four mm. and it's awesome 
they kind of had to be together. Yeah. Yeah. I think it fits though with the lighthearted kind of skippy, you know, feeling that the song is trying to get across, which goes back. They're almost kind of, they're almost kind of playing with the feel, right? It's like, it's kind of like, like a game with the listen, but like a fun, like a fun game, not like a mind game with like between the, the musicians and the listener to be like, Ooh, we're going to slow down now. Ooh, we're going to go really fast now, you know? This feels like a song that could be written in modern day. Like, this is a song that, like, you feel like if someone were to try and write, like, say, a Christmas album, and they were going to write, like, a great vocal piece, this feels like something that could be written. There's, there's a. I don't know if I'd go that far, but until you said Christmas, then I kind of agree. Yeah. Like there's this this feels this is starting to feel like a like your like a song, which we haven't really mm-hmm. encountered yet. It doesn't feel like because we've we've looked at a lot of these really huge, um, very uh, lyrically and uh, musically adventurous. Like as far as like there's there's very linear structures to a lot of the songs that we hear in this sub-series mm-hmm. where it's like you know you don't return to verses and choruses it's kind of like the music is constantly moving in one direction and i think what's so interesting of getting to this point now is you have a song like this where it's like it has hooks remember ethan we kept talking about it was just like we don't know what the hook is yeah it's hard to know the like it's almost like song yeah you said it perfectly songs that were very linear you know mm-hmm. and now i feel like we we're starting to see more uh song structure where it's like oh this is definitely even if we haven't really gotten to like hardcore very obvious verses and choruses you know mm-hmm. it's like oh there's the singing part and then there's the fa-la-la part and then it goes back to the singing part and then it goes back to the fa-la-la part and the meter like, change always comes in a predictable place yeah it doesn't feel like it just yep. i mean it, it it surprised you the first time but then the second time it comes exactly when you expect it to yeah it's it's like uh when we were on our jazz episode how uh jazz players are like a section b section c section like you could do that to this song you could be like if if the na 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 was the a section and then like the fa la la's was the b and then the meter change was c Mm-hmm. Or there's like another lyrical thing that's different than the A section, so maybe that's the C section. But you could like section out what parts are what and and make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it it also is like this song is like something that I found myself humming, and I was humming it correctly. I remembered how this tune went, which oh, is that's, again that's that's the other nice thing because in a a lot of these past episodes, which probably a lot of the listeners are uh, cracking up right now, but like <laughs> I have to like kind of like really jog my memory to like rethink of what the song sounded like, or since I listen with the music in my ears, like right now, I'd have to like go back and be like, oh yeah, that's the song that does the you know, right, right. This was on this most- after listening to it, I I look up at my Bonnie last she smiles, and I automatically know it's my Bonnie last she smiles. It's like great 
Yeah, I, I found myself Less. singing it like as I was doing chores or working. And, I was, like, and I, it's the it's the most recognizable song from the list because it's mm-hmm. in English like, to us. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's a lot like, of things like, working oh. in its favor. Yeah, right. Definitely the the easiest one to remember. But yeah, I I think it's just a nice, simple, fun song. It sounds like uh, Thomas knew what he was doing. It's like he was he was a. Uh... He was the first great pop songwriter. Yeah. So where does this sit on the uh, Thomas Morley uh, best song list? <laughs> oh, I'm not going there. Number one. Number one of one. <laughs> Probably number one. Yeah. Number one of one. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll go ahead with that, and we go to another Thomas. We'll go ahead and move on to uh, yeah our next song, which is... actually I'm curious. I am curious, Lucas. Uh-huh. Before we move on, did you have do you have like a mental ranking of your favorite and least favorite song out of the six? Oh, I don't think I had thought my way through it. You don't have to say because we normally, as all listeners know, it's like what ranking is this out of everything? And I know you don't have time to go through and rank every single, you know, song from the Renaissance. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> that would that would probably actually kill. So like a one to six, like a little one to six. Man, I really like this song. I think just like I said, this it the fact that I could remember it so well, yeah, worked really well in its favor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I could sing along to it if I wanted to, and I and I did sometimes, and it was enjoyable. I know that there are other ones that you could say are more musically and lyrically rich. This is I, – I, I intended – this was intentional to kind of put a very easy, approachable song at the beginning. You know, and then as we get mm-hmm. as we get in, we'll kind of start to get into more conceptually dense uh, aerial. Yeah. But I felt it was just like this is this is very much more to just like go boom, here it is. Here's a nice, enjoyable song. Whoop, there it is. That's right. Boom, shaka, lock. So, but on a, from one to six, where would you put it in the ranking? Mm-hmm. For objectively best song of the Renaissance. As far as objectively the best? <sighs> Putting you on the spot. You don't have time to think about it. Like I would more. say it's probably <laughs> number three. Ooh, Ooh, I would have thought it. Like, I, I would put it at number two. I but number three, I I see it. There's another song. Yeah, I, I ha- I'm not that nuanced in my madrigal appreciation. I'm, <laughs> I can't put it on the list. All right, that brings us to the next song. As this right, song was comment. from Latmos Hill Descending. This song, even though it is in English technically, is not as catchy as My Bonnie Lashy Smile. No. no. It is not. But it, it is the writing on it is more interesting. Yes. It's uh this is a uh, a retelling of a old uh Greek tale. It's talking about Ooh. uh about Diana and You got you gotta tell the tale, man. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm trying to find the lyrics again so I can, uh, so I can talk about it accurately. Okay, mm-hmm. so 
As Vesta was from Latmos Hill descending, she spied a maiden queen the same ascending. Melody uh, attended on by all the shepherds swain to whom Diana's darlings came running down a main. First two by two, then three by three together, leaving their goddess all alone, hasted thither, and mingling with the shepherds of her train, with mirthful tunes her presence entertain. Then sang the shepherds and nymphs of Diana, long live fair Oriana. Hmm. Okay. So pretty much it's about a... uh, a woman named Vesta. She's got her entourage with her. She's going down the hill, and uh, Diana, this the goddess of beauty, is going up the hill, and she's so beautiful that her entourage ditches her and goes with the more faded, more fair maiden. So pretty much, it's 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 proclaiming the beauty of this goddess. But the the intended allegory is that um, that it's supposed to be a, a tribute to the newly crowned queen. Mm. Uh, I believe it was Queen Elizabeth at that time, because that's where the Oriana comes from. Long live mm-hmm. fair Oriana. That was one of her. Uh, that was one of her surnames. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. And so it's it's like it's this is this was meant to be a a praise of the queen, saying that she is as beautiful as well as virtuous because the whole thing about Diana is that she is the the virgin goddess, and at that time mm-hmm. Elizabeth was the virgin queen, and so saying she is pure, she is unspoiled, she is beautiful, you know she is the woman that every man desires to be with and every woman should aspire to be mm-hmm. even the most it definitely has the epic quality to it yes of that. so that's that's kind of the uh, the context for it mm-hmm. you know now knowing that context I, I originally did not like this song as much because I, I didn't like the um, the the I don't know I guess I don't know the technical musical term for it so sorry if you're a professional music person out there but like all the like the lyrics like repeating in such quick like like a lyric is being sung and then like more lyrics are being sung over it but it's like the same just like oh yeah upper back and eighth note and then more like it just there's a lot and then it all kind of comes together it was, it hard was to kind of uh, it was a little obnoxious but now hearing yeah. the story behind it it's like oh okay that's kind of it's cool now knowing the story in that, and, in that context and knowing that they meant to do like a play on words yeah. right listening through it again it made more sense right like there was a there was a lyric where they were saying like running down or something mm-hmm. yeah and, like the lyrics were kind of like they felt like they were tumbling and down. running yeah. down a main and running down a main <laughs> yeah exactly and when they say first two by two it's two part harmony and then when they do three by three it's three part harmony yeah i'm like ooh, that's like that's pretty big brain mm-hmm. right? so, and then it's uh, a, it's one voice when they say leaving their goddess all alone yeah 
Ooh. So I, at, for whenever I didn't really know what was happening, I was just like, I'm kind of annoyed at, <laughs> you know, I'm just annoyed at all the voices and it, then it comes together and then it separates and it comes together. But like now knowing the story, I'm just like, ah, it's, it's all this, for a purpose. This is all, this is like, the whole point of the song is to like, just go crazy with the word painting. Cause yeah. like you've got the melodic lines descending and as Vesta was from Latmos Hill descending the melodic scale ascends when she spied the yeah. queen ascending uh, attended on all the shepherd swain it stays it's neither rising nor descending it's staying the same yeah. uh, then of course you've got the the that that tumbling vocal line for running down a main you've got the two by two the three by three leaving the gods alone solo voice and then it all comes together as the shepherds mingle together. Um, and then you've got the um, the long live fair Oriana, which also that is a typical. It's not it's not required, but it's very common in madrigals to have like what you would call the moral of the story as the final line, and to have it repeated over and over again. Which they say long live fair Oriana like many, many times. It's yeah. kinda like they're Yep. That's like that's the point of the story. Okay. Okay. It's starting to make more sense. I think I agree with you, Ethan, that it was almost annoying the first time I heard it. It it was overwhelming and then yeah. I became unable to really process anything you know and that was what was annoying i was just like everyone is just singing at the same time and i don't know what's happening you know right. the the thing about like those word puzzles and and in songs and whatever um is typically a band that will write one of those you'll know that they're that kind of band and so listening to modern music when an artist does that you know you tend to expect it more and I did not expect it at all. I was just like, oh, they're doing something that's just random. Because I, I, like, I didn't pay attention to the lyrics, right? Because they were doing something that sounded random. I'm like, what the heck is happening? Right? But now that it's explained, I get it. It's what I'm here for, baby. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Okay. Yeah, I think, yeah. like, I would put this probably at, at my number two. Just because it's like when you really look at how much they're doing, how much thought went into every single like this is this is obviously something the lyrics came first and they created a song to perfectly mirror everything lyrically that's happening. And I just think that it's really especially for that time, really genius songwriting to to put it together like that. Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. All right. So, what do you guys agree? Did uh... I'm I just, I'm I just want to hear your rankings, and then I'll decide afterwards because you're you're very convincing. <laughs> I don't I don't want to say my position too soon because it's being swayed <laughs> as we go through. <laughs> okay. Okie dokie. So now let's move on to our third song. 
Datemi Passe. So, unfortunately, we have to say goodbye to the English lyrics. Man. Back to Latin, I guess. Uh-huh. Or... So, well, it's not Latin. It's Italian. We're not going to have any we're not going to have any Latin in this. Ooh. So, this uh-huh. song was written the music was written by Cipriano de Roar, who is an Italian composer, but the lyrics actually come from one of the greatest writers of all time, Mr. Petrarch. If you remember him, Ooh, I do. He's the guy that came up with the term the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. Uh, from two months ago, right? Yeah, he, we, we talked Troubadour episode, but we also briefly talked about him in the previous episode as well. He's kind of like one of those pre-Renaissance figures that um, as well as he was the um, one of his lyrics was used for one of our Troubadour songs, I believe, as well. Mm-hmm. So right. obviously um, you know, he is a someone that lends to putting music to his words. The Datami Passe translates to O Heart. And let me, I'll go ahead and because now that we have, uh, we have foreign lyrics, I'll go ahead and just real quick run through what this song is saying. Oh, harsh thoughts of mine, grant me peace. Is it not enough that love, fate, and death make war on me around and at the gates without me finding other battles within? And you, my heart, are you still what you were, disloyal only to me, receiving wild company and forging alliances so quickly and so readily with my enemies? In you, love hides his secret messages. In you, fate reveals all his triumph and death the memory of that blow. That must shatter all my advances. In you, wrong thought arms itself with error. So I charge you alone with all my ills. Hmm. Wow. Metal. That, that is, uh, that is, um, okay. <laughs> so he's That's just not saying... something that I'm going to, like, read and go, wow, I should put that to music. But it makes sense to be... A lyric. <laughs> it makes sense to be a lyric. Can I, can I get that on a plaque somewhere? Uh, it, it makes sense to put it on a plaque. <laughs> I mean, oh, silly. Well, I am used to lyrics that are more like, ah, kill the unbelievers. You know what I mean? So you'll have to forget. Naturally. When it talks about you know, how actually, I don't know, because now that I think about it, it's like a lot of modern music is very introspective and especially like 90s music, right? Like a lot of that grunge stuff was very like, oh, woe is me. I've made bad decisions or I have a drug addiction or, oh, I want to kill myself, right? Kind of music, which, mm-hmm. which can be more or less intellectual, right? Obviously, you can have some really just like 
total Nirvana type of like Nirvana the band, right? Where it's just nonsensical. Or you could have like a total Nirvana, like actual Nirvana, like awesome lyrical moments, right? Um, so I don't know. Maybe this is kind of very modern in a sense that it's like looking inside of like what your own heart motivations are and how maybe following your heart is not always the best perhaps mhm and yet there's there's such there's there's an awful amount of spite ooh i mean you know saying you know i everything that is wrong in my life it's your fault yeah but it's his own it's, it's his own heart his own desires fault right that's kind of what he's getting at um well i guess so i guess yeah that actually probably is the more accurate translation i think i looked at it a little too literally and thought that he was talking about a woman but i guess actually the as a look at it i took that for granted yeah where's that lyrical analysis man yeah i i I thought he was talking directly about himself, about his own heart. Well, you know, colored me pink. <laughs> so it's why there's the, we're the Trinity, you know. Right. I am not. I am not the be all end all of all knowledge. On this so, podcast, it, it is a little bit self deprecating and a little bit self loathing, though. That and also self aware that he's he is angered and vexed by his own his own desires it's like the the never-ending conflict between my mind knows Mm -hmm. technically the right thing but my heart will not allow me and then Mm -hmm. you keep making that same Mm -hmm. mistake Mm i uh i hate what i am and i know what i should do yet my body will not let me yeah Mm -hmm. i know what to do i just don't do it yeah Mm -hmm. Haven't haven't we all been in a relationship like that at some point? I where we're, where we're, our brain is telling us this is a really bad idea, but your heart like makes you go after it. Well, that's just something that happens in general, not even having to involve other people. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, if you want to talk about things like, you know, addiction, right? Or, well, even even extreme cases there, like your brain is telling you, right? Or just making any rash decision, whether it feels good or bad or it, whether it pays off or not, right? Um, even you could say that music, right? In a lot of cases, there's no real logical reason why a song is good versus bad, like a melody is good versus bad. Like you can break it down mathematically, say – these particular moments are good because of this reason, right? That's why, that's where music theory comes from. But ultimately it's your heart that like, I would say positively in this instance is able to distinguish what good and bad music is. Yeah. That's a little bit too far. I mean, that happens all the time on this podcast. That's, that's a little bit too far from the meaning of the song, but (laughs) it I just kind of rambled, and that's where I ended up. I will <laughs> say this: the the songwriting in this song, uh, I guess the Timmy Pache probably, or is it is it Pache since it's Italian? 
Uh, I'm sure. I mean, my <laughs> my uh, pace. Italian pronunciation is not uh, it's not the best. Yeah. But I, I, there is a little bit of a uh, we start to get, I guess, far further away from word painting. I feel on this one. Yeah, this is. Um, I think much more meant to just be uh, like you can tell that the lyrics were written Mm. pre-Renaissance and I think that that had an uh, a unintentional consequences to the music yeah but still it's very pleasant to listen to yeah undoubtedly It almost like it's it. The lyrics are almost kind of contradicting the nature of the music because it does feel peaceful, and yet the whole song is about not having peace. Well, maybe it's like the peace of being unable to do anything, you know? Like you may not be in the best of circumstances, but because there's nothing you can do to change it, you get peace from that. Which is a real thing, you know. Maybe. Just, where where would you rank this one? I'm to read between the lines that aren't there. Um, I would say that it's probably at my bottom. Really? It's the one that I felt like had the least amount of impact on me. Fair. But it's it's still a great piece. Yeah. I mean, we're, we wouldn't feature it if it wasn't. Yeah. It's just the sixth. I don't one. know. Some of those ancient history episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's worth listening to, right? But it's like, it's not, oh, you know, it's not like, wow, what a wonderful piece. Yeah. But we're far from that, so. All right. Are you guys ready for the next one? I am so ready. Oh, man. Are you ready to hear me pronounce this? I am even more ready for that. Non si l'alba novella. That was beautiful. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I have to share this in is... your pain at the beginning of the next. Oh, that's true. Uh, so I'm, I'm like listening to how you're pronouncing it, and I'm just like, yeah, taking notes. I'm just going to call it non si. <laughs> Nancy Levav and Coral Alba. Novella. <laughs> uh, this is the first of our two songs in this episode by uh, Mr. Monteverde. And um, so before he um, really started to get into other forms like opera, he was really like the most prolific madrigal writer of his time Mm -hmm. he wrote like he wrote over a hundred of them wow Wow. which is no small feat like he was constantly publishing books of madrigals so this was actually one of his earlier madrigals because i wanted to have a an early monteverde madrigal and a late monteverde madrigal Mm. This kind of shows him more in the early stage of writing them. So we'll have to do a little compare and contrast 
when we get to the other one. Mm-hmm. So real quick, I'll run through the English translation. Yep. Dawn had not yet risen, nor had birds stretched their wings to the new sun. By the way, um, if you notice, pretty much every single song is just the first line of the song. Yep. Yeah. You know, my Bonnie laughs, she smileth. Yep. That was the first thing they said. As Vesto was on Latmus Hill descending, that's the first thing they said. So they're, you know, we don't have this uh, super creative, like, you know, I'm going to name this song Octavarium because it's got all these hidden meaning. <laughs> if if that had been written back in the day, that song would have been called I Never, I never Wanted to Become Someone Like Him. Mm-hmm. Which is still a cool name. Yeah, but doesn't quite commit the same power as Octavarium. Um, so that's what Non Si Lavava in Coralba Novella means. Don had not yet risen. Nor had birds stretched their wings to the new sun, but the loving star was still alight. When the two fair and graceful lovers, whom a merry knight had joined together, and as many twists and turns as an Acanthus were separated by the new light, sweet cries and the final embraces, mixed with kisses and sighs, a thousand burning thoughts, a thousand yearnings, a thousand unfulfilled desires, did find each loving soul in the other's beautiful eyes. And one said, sighing with languid words, goodbye, my soul. And the other answered, my life, goodbye. Goodbye, no stay. And they would not leave before the new sun. And before dawn, which rose in the sky, each saw the most beautiful roses pale on loving lips, and eyes shimmer like small flames, and their parting was that of souls which are cut up and uprooted. Goodbye, for I leave and die, sweet languor and melancholic departure. Wow. That was... That was pretty good. Yeah. There's wow. a reason why there's a reason why he was the master of this time period. Did he write those lyrics? Yes, he did. Epic. Wow. It's good so, music and good lyrics. Mm-hmm. Obviously can't understand the lyrics as they're being sung, but that kind of sets it at another level. Wow. I can see why Datemi Pace was at the bottom for you. <laughs> I don't have to pronounce it correctly because I'm not announcing it, you know. Datami Pace. Datami Pace. Um, yeah, and this is this is a step above from the previous three songs, yes. as in it's not. I remember we talked about last episode about dynamics and how, especially that last song of that previous episode. There was just so much play with dynamics, and it just it was very emotionally um, conductive, right? Mm-hmm. Such is the case with this song, right? There's a there's a level of sophistication that's just much higher than the previous three, and it's not necessarily that you know keys are change in this dramatic manner it's not the level of drama that you'd see from from something of um like the romantic era 
but it's dramatic and it's there's kind of a an emotion being carried I guess that it's like there's ups and downs there's like a roller coaster it's not like my body last she smileth like all the time right and it's not just like fa la 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 all the time right there's there's ups and downs and reflective reflecting in the uh lyrics right i would assume you know would would play off of each other and that is something that is really nice to hear that you don't hear in a lot of modern music right a lot of modern music is mixed to be you know kind of like loud for the chorus and quiet for the verse doesn't really matter what the emotion is right and so when you hear that in modern music it's like we pay attention and so um hearing it in this renaissance music of course we're gonna pay attention there so yeah i think am i correct in the assumption that we're moving forward in history through this set no we okay. actually are not. i didn't i didn't construct it in that sense okay because it it does sound like that because it gets more and more um well constructed i i'd say by the time we get to the end yeah i would say that um that was more intentional of just like kind of mm-hmm. you know i wanted to have a good even balance of some easy um I guess you could say your pop madrigals and your uh artistic madrigals mm-hmm. like That's this is good. one where it's like he was really wanting to tell a great poetic story and and this song it's not as easy to pick up the forms like my ears not just picking up on like so there's melodies in there that I can pick up but it's harder to tell you know you can't be like oh that's the A section that's the B section you know it's a lot mm-hmm. more difficult to structure right. yeah um yeah monteverde was was a genius. I'm finding that out more and more, especially as I'm studying Lorfeo and um, and of course we're going to hear it again. We don't uh, we still have more to examine from him even in this episode. Um, this is I would put this, I, I think I might change my ranking a little bit. I'm going to obviously Tommy Pace is going to stay at the bottom, but I think I might push um as Vesta to number five no I would say I would say my Bonnie even though as good as I love it the more I'm thinking about it as good as these next songs are yep I think that my Bonnie has to be fifth fourth being I would say yeah it's the best of the easy listening madrigals, and it's still really good. But yeah, yeah you definitely do hit a new level with these songs. Right, right. That's and that's when I think, I think da temi pace or pace or pace. Right. I don't. That didn't. Um, and also the fact that it's not in English. Right. That kind of acted as a. I think an unintentional separator for me subconsciously uh-huh. and thinking like, Oh, we have our English madrigals 
and now we have like a completely different side of music you know because um especially these last three sound completely different from the first two and you know our third song is kind of just a, a what is happening you know comparatively right yeah but it kind of gets you in a different mindset it does and i think that if you don't try to compare every song to the first song right that was my problem as i kept trying to compare every song to um, my body last see smile and it just didn't work i think <laughs> if if the listeners could heed one piece of advice if you haven't listened to the set yet is try to treat every song as its own as its own piece and don't try to compare them to each other right i mean obviously every episode there's a theme and so you kind of subconsciously do that but um after going through these songs you know it it starts to they start to set themselves apart as we talk about them and i wish i would have originally set them apart in my head Mm -hmm. so but anyway that that so doesn't, so that you're doesn't sitting... mean that they're that they're on wildly different sides, you know, these last three. But you know, they are all their own their own piece. So where what ranking are you giving to this first uh this first I, very... I think that it's number three. Yeah, that's what I would expect. Because these next two are pretty <laughs> Pretty oh, yeah. amazing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um before we started recording, you guys said that there was a very obvious best song. Oh yeah. There it's pretty obvious. And I I definitely know that the next song, um, Lo Pardo Enon Pudisi, is definitely the most interesting sounding song, the most unique sounding song in this set. It is. Okay. This is the one I heard it and I was just like, whoa, wait a minute. What is... Is this composer like notable? No. He is our amateur in this uh, in this list. Amateur? Yes. But he still had a patron. No. Truly an amateur. Mm Mm-mm. He 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 was the patron. He was a prince. Oh, he kind of happens to have the funding to do it himself. Yeah, he just he he had enough money that he could just do it himself. Giraffe money, nice. Yes, giraffe money, and that giraffe money. So this guy has the most interesting life story of all of our composers. So this guy. Carlo Gesualdo, um, he caught his wife having an affair with the Duke of Andrea and caught them in the act and killed them both right on the spot. Well, that is that is a response. To it's metal. It's pretty metal. And yeah. <laughs> didn't just kill them, but like... Th- Reports say that their corpse were pretty horribly mutilated. Like it was a it was a gruesome crime. 
and um, he suffered a lot of guilt and depression after that happened. Some even go as far to say that he might have become demon-possessed. And he ordered his servants to beat him daily. Mm -hmm. And it was during this time that he wrote this song. All right, so tough <laughs> lyrics then. <laughs> so that that gives us a nice little um, On nice that little back. background. Uh, I am leaving, I said, and no more, because pain deprived my heart of all life. Then Chorus burst out in tears and said, amid sobbing, "Alas, thus here I stay in sorrow. Ah, may I never cease languishing in mourning lays." I was dead, but now I live because my fallen spirit returned to life at such merciful words. That's it. Wow. Wow. That's all That's all I had to say. There's musically, and I don't know where this fits in lyrically, but there's there's like a very dark nature to it. Yeah, it's the chromaticism of it. Well, and then it's also just like those very low lows and uh-huh. the real minor minors and the moments of silence that kind of it's almost like brooding. Like it's really I over. think it's very interesting um, that the amateur came up with the weirdest sounding madrigal of this time. Oh, it's always the amateurs. That's it's always that he always that, that he had the harebrained idea to like just do something whackball. It's always the artists early in their career that do something crazy because they don't know the rules of music quite yet, right? Mm-hmm. They don't know the rules of the music industry, right? And that's how when you get later into an artist's career, things start to stag- stagnate, right? Yeah. And you can definitely hear his depression. You can hear that he is a tortured man that wrote this song. And I think also this is this is the the, the song in the set where you can feel the most um, the the actual struggle of the real life situations bleeding into the music. And really, this you could say that this is the first time in our music history series that someone's personal life has completely influence the way that the music sounds not but just also not just what the lyrics say that this great. is an outlier because like we said earlier all the other composers had to have patrons and they had to they had to they were commissioned to write good music but they were also like well like they can't just write whatever weird stuff that they want to they still it's just be listenable you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this guy didn't have a patron he didn't he was just a guy that could do whatever he wanted and this is he went with no other filters attached he was able to put this out that's a good point yeah he didn't have the pressure you know it didn't have to sell yeah it didn't have to sell that's a very good point that's how a lot of very experimental music today in underground you know like metal scenes <clears throat> you know 
where it's like whether or not it's good, right? Most of the time, it's pretty bad. But nobody has to listen to it. And a lot of the times, people are writing music because, you know, they're wanting to hear music that doesn't exist somewhere else, right? There are some times when I, you know, I go on to Spotify and I'm like, hmm, what am I going to listen to, you know, after I've listened to the music for the podcast right i'm like ooh, i'll just clean out my ears with something i really want to listen to and i'm trying to find music that like quite frankly doesn't exist right and i think that that's a lot of like drive behind people writing music today it's like it's so so easy with things like garage band and free digital audio workstations yeah. and whatever for anyone really to write their own music and i think that he, our composer here didn't have music that reflected what he felt. And so he just wrote it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool to, to have a, a song on here. That's like, that kind of breaks from the tradition of what everyone else was doing and mm-hmm. see how dra- drastically it changes the outcome of the music. Right. Right. So, with that so what is lamentation, the... I guess we're not done. I guess we keep going. Um, um, Ethan, I guess we hadn't really heard what were you? What were you really pulling from this song as far as musically? Did it did it strike you as really strange the same way it did it, us? It struck me in in terms of the. I mean, because like it goes like really minor and at the beginning it's not like i guess initially i didn't feel the the dark undertones throughout the whole song i was just like the beginning i was like oh this is kind of happy i guess and then it would like get really dark and it would get kind of sporadic and then it was like over you know what i'm saying like i was just like i feel like mood swings of the song exactly i was about to say it has a very mood swing very bipolar which again if this is someone that had kind of gone insane yeah, this kind of makes sense, and the lyrics even from it goes from this this incredible sadness to this great joy. But then, the what it is is the the lyrics cycle through each other several times, and so you're constantly going this happy. Then it goes right back to the sad, then to the happy, and the sad is kind of like it it can't make up its mind. Yeah, and so that's mainly what I was picking up on. Uh, I don't I don't think it initially it didn't like shock me i was just like oh yeah we get like a minor flavor you know i and think it just shocked it executed me. really well though yeah oh yeah it's i think it's really well written um i just to me it shocked me in the sense of like when you're listening to the other songs that come before and then all of a sudden this happens it's kind of like oh one of these things is not like the others yeah it's it's it uh it takes an interesting turn. Yep. Where would you rank this one? <sighs> or do you want to save that for the after hours since we're between number one and two? We'll save it for the or well, I guess not after hours, but for the, the, the final box. Right. I'll save it because I'm very interested to talk about, or not interested, but excited to talk about our last song. Yes, I am too. Once again, from 
Senor Monteverde. So this is his later career. Yes. Uh, Lamento di Ariana. And what makes this very uh, unique is that this was actually not originally written as a madrigal. It was originally a excerpt from one of his operas. Mm. But that opera is lost. Oh, that's oh. so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it wasn't lost in his lifetime, but it was lost about a couple decades after he had passed away. And um, just the 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 music just was never found. And, but he had decided almost it's it almost feels like it's a promotional tool, like like releasing a single. He took one of the one of the songs from the opera, converted it into a madrigal, and it became one of his most popular madrigals. It is like a single. Yeah. He reworked it, made it to where it fits in the definitive parameters of what a magical is, and um, and that's what ended up surviving. It's the only record we have of that opera, except for what's called the libretto, which is the uh, the text of the opera. But that's the only music that of the opera that still survives. So, because of the fact that it was originally written for a different medium, that automatically gives it a uh, a much different musical texture. Yeah. Much different. So, I'm curious also if this is what you guys were... Um, were saying just like, oh man, this is the this is the the standout song. Yes, yes, this is the standout song without a doubt. This was the song like when I first listened through the set, and it gets to like some of those really big moments. I'm like, this sounds like something I would see on like a sci-fi like soundtrack or something, you know. Like, it sounds like modern composition. Literally indistinguishable. Um, and it's, and I didn't even know the name of it because I was just listening through the set without looking at the names of the songs, you know. And it's so accurate, right? The name of the song, Lament, because whereas the darkness in our fifth song was more like a sinister, brooding, like, very dark in like a like an aggressive way Mm -hmm. this song was dark in like a deep sadness like there are there are points of just like overwhelming despair and i think those are the really high points Mm -hmm. of the song and there are points of just this kind of this peaceful discontent right are those points of just like acceptance right and then falling That's back it. into that despair it's really like you can you can feel the emotion without even knowing the lyrics right whereas something like asbesto where it's like the lyrics are turned into like this wordplay right on like how it's composed 
like this song it's you don't even have to know the lyrics you pretty much know what emotion you're supposed to be feeling at the time and that's like that's what sets it apart is because it's just on a complete other level from all of the other songs it's like miles ahead light years ahead yeah it's easy to pick up on the the deep sadness into the mm-hmm. almost the the bittersweet like piece right and it demands like, like, especially at the very end it just like ends on like it's like it ends on a major chord but very softly where it's just like right you know it's like it doesn't end on a minor where it would be like i'm still sad but it's like there's something melancholy about the ending it doesn't feel finished but it feels like it just has to be finished right Mm -hmm. like you can't be sad forever so i guess i might as well be okay with it yeah at least content or not sad you know maybe it's not happiness but it's not sadness either man now there's way too many lyrics in this one for me to be able to read through it and when you were talking about how it was part of the lost opera and I was listening through the song. I'm like, wow, that is so sad. Because I was listening to the music. And it's like the music was sad. And then the fact that they lost the music was also sad. It was just like, there's a lot of, ooh. There's just a lot to this song. And and I would say this song is, and obviously if this guy's going to show up back in our transition period the next week, like this song is the most... I mean, it sounds modern in terms of like the chord selection and the voicings that it's using and the tensions, like even the way that he's creating tensions, like in the middle of the chords, you know, like having like, like the chord that like right before the finishing chord is like a a five, seven chord, you know, (laughs) which is like very, you know, Western you know mm-hmm. like two five one you know right right but you, could, you could like literally like core chart out the song like with the Nashville number system you know and, and like get there kind of well yeah, yeah, yeah actually engines, probably could. because there are some there's some really weird portions where he's like moving minor chromatically and it has this kind of like eerie vibe. You know, that's kind of where like the spacey vibe, I guess, comes from. Yeah. Um, but then he like jumps around a lot. But it doesn't feel like jumping as you as it did um for like a lot of our high middle ages music or for like the first song of this set, even, right? It feels very Lowy, and I think that plays very well into the composition. And you're right; there's a lot of points that um, the melody will kind of be hanging on the same note, but the chords will be changing underneath to create like this really interesting, like chord change. I don't know. I don't know what it's really called. The point that this song sold me, where I was super surprised, it was like. Grant, are you listening on Spotify right now? I I am listening. Go to the 35 second mark, and then once it transitions into like the 40 second mark, that was the part of the song where I was like, oh my gosh, this is I think I know your part you're insane. talking about. It's the same for me too. 
like going into like what feels like the second verse i was like i was like oh whoa that's very sad that that wasn't (laughs) it for me it i love that part i think it was actually and then obviously there's like a the climax at the end which is like the obvious you know but for for me it was pretty much immediate and that that thing around the 20 to 25 second mark right those were the those were the two moments where like okay this is yeah, something those, that's like really like that both those things perked my ears up and when you do that to like my ears within the first 30 seconds it's like yeah, I, yeah, i'm gonna the world. yeah yeah it's a so brilliant can... composition let What's... me let I'll yeah, give lyrics. you guys a couple of excerpts of lyrics. So it starts off with "Let me die," <laughs> and who do you think can comfort me in thus harsh fate and thus great suffering? Let me die. I would like to say, I would like to point out that the title of the song is not "Let Me Die." No, it's it's what it is. Is that's the name of the opera? Oh. Okay. Ah, well, right. uh, the the opera is De Ariana, and it's pretty much it's Ariana's lament. Okay, got it. Um, oh Theseus, oh my Theseus, yes, I still call you mine. For mine you are, although you flee, cruel one, far from my eyes. Ah, that you do not even reply. Ah, that you are deaf to my laments. Oh clouds, oh storms, oh winds, submerge him in those waves. What am I saying? Ah, what am I raving about? Wretched that I am, what am I asking? Wretched that I am, still I give place to a hope betrayed, and despite so much scorn, the fire of love is not put out. For that put out now death the unworthy flames. O mother, O father, O superb dwellings of the ancient kingdom, where my golden cradle stood. O servants, O faithful friends, ah, unjust fate. See where a cruel fortune has led me. See what pain has been given to me as a heritage for my love, my faith, and for his betraying me. That is the fate of one who loves too much and believes too much. Man. This just, ugh. We're actually getting into, like, fantastic songwriting here. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, this is probably the first of the entire series where I just want to pick it apart because I want to make music just like this. That, oh man, that gives the same feelings. Well, and I want to know why. You know what I mean? Yeah, well thank yeah. you Mr. Monteverde for preserving this piece. Man, could you imagine what this whole opera would have sounded like? I wish. That would have been great. Which, if it's so we get more Monteverde, right? Yes, if because we're gonna have a whole episode dedicated to him and him in his opera next, uh, not next episode, but next month when we get to the end of the month. Yeah, it's a full episode. episode. You, I've, I've already got it for you guys on your uh, little listening playlist. You guys can go ahead and jump on that if you're all up and excited. Fancy smancy. Well, it's a taste of what's to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you guys have anything else that you wanted to uh, throw in there? I just really like it. It's hard. It's like, it's so much. It, it's so much that I, I fear that it's like a deep oil well where it's like if I make one crack of a question that it will spew 
for, <laughs> like, for 10 minutes. Yeah, I don't that it will, it'll be an extended. I, I think the best thing anyone can listen to or anyone can do is just go listen to the song. It's, it's very good. It's, it's actually a very interesting... I like that it's at the end of the set. One, because the climax is really good. But I think that it tees up the transition period out of the renaissance era very well see i didn't didn't stop playing 4d chess i i can hear i you can hear from even from uh my body last she smileth or from you know even from lo parto it's like you can you can be like oh like this guy is not playing like it's like with you were doing harmonies like before but not like this. Like this is, <laughs> it's this literally, is... it's literally less than three minutes long, and like we're getting close to two hours of this episode. So anyone listening, like literally, stop the episode right now if you haven't listened to the song and and listen to it. I won't be. And that that was my my main problem. Actually, was I I was listening through all the set in order i was like okay you know middle ages this sounds pretty similar to the to the church stuff you know right not you know it's a little bit different but the harmonies and there was definitely like a distinct way that they were doing harmonies that still wasn't modern you know but it was harmony right um because i didn't feel like they were doing harmonies in terms of chord structuring and in terms of like diatonic harmony it was more like let's try to make harmonies with two separate lines you know and then so i was listening through the set and then i got to this and in my brain like the writing on this was just so much more sophisticated than the other was it was it was hard to go back and listen to the other ones no (laughs) and then and like go back to not not that the other ones were bad it's just it's just i'm it's just like the sophistication and the maturity and the understanding of and it's probably maybe my western ear but it's like we don't have counter melodies we don't have you know everything is just succinct and focused in on like what it's supposed to be focused in on you know like if you look at as best it's cool that there's multiple melodies going along and multiple things and it's trying to you know, it's a little bit kitschy in the, in the way that it's trying to like word paint or whatever. Yep. But then you get to the lament, and it's just like so focused, so focused. And so, I'm excited for the next week. I guess all that to say that Lucas, this was a great set, and you have my ear interested in the transition period. In, and I hate that you have. Uh, made me interested in opera because if this is (laughs) if this is a um, if this is the intro drug to opera then I'm a little bit concerned for my future well in a good guess now I've got two people to go to operas with me after this yeah once we if there's an opera that comes to town we should totally go yeah (laughs) we should totally go but only after next month, once I feel like I have a better understanding of the origin. Yes. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and end it there, or at least this segment. We'll uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about our final thoughts and wrap things up. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to the secular music of the Renaissance era and our six-song set, which was, and forgive my uh, pronunciation, any of you that are um, uh, Italian speakers. <laughs> so we got My Bonnie Lass, She Smileth, As Vesta Was from Latmus Hill Descending, uh, De Timmy Pace, uh, Nancy Levancourt La Alba Novella, Loparto Inan Pui de Si, and Lamento uh, de Ariana. And so now we are on to our last segment of the night, which is Final Thoughts, which is uh, now that we've listened through the set, now that hopefully you have listened through the set, um, we kind of just get to give our, you know, before and after thoughts of, you know, Discussing songs and discussing lyrics always changes your opinion because you get more context. So, Grant, final thoughts go. I think I know exactly what my favorite song is, and I think that everyone listening and both you guys know what my favorite song is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely Lamento. Um, Just because, man, it's, wow. It's so good to, and I thought we came a long way in the last episode or in the episode before even right it's so good to have something that's so mathematically like planned out you know every uh, every change in dynamic is countered by a change in you know chord structure or a change in meter slightly you know mm-hmm. if anything right it's so good to hear every part of a piece of music play off of each other that's something that we don't have in modern music that like i said you know when it does occur we pay attention right um and man it's just even in this even in this episode that wasn't even constructed historically, there's such a wide range of different types of music. And there's such different levels of sophistication of songwriting. And I am so excited to watch it get crazier and crazier and better and better. And Lucas did a little like tease with the whole opera thing, but I think it's working in, in, your favor, Lucas. I'm really, my interest is peaked. I'm not necessarily going to go listen to the the opera right now because, you know, we have quite a few episodes between here and then. Um, but, man, man, it's just, it's just, things are looking really good for humanity and music. I'll just say that. <laughs> It's like, I think we're going to get to a level where music is just so good faster than I thought it would be. I thought it would take us till, like, honestly, like the 18, 1900s before we got to a point where music was even, like when we started this series, I, I thought it would take us till then before music was even, like, bearable for an entire set. But Oh, no. Not only was this set bearable, the songs, all of them, at at the baseline were good compositions, right? Some of them were planned out lyrically, 
right? Some of them were so poetic lyrically. And then some of them, like our last song, were just undeniably emotionally conductive. And it's just, it's very inspiring. And it's something that, and I can see why um, genres like neoclassical are a thing. Because there's something here that, that should not be ignored. So, anyway, that's not really a cohesive final thought. That was just kind of me rambling. Oh, I, but, that was that's great. It was so passionate. It was. But, but I think I'm, I'm just getting more excited and more excited with every history of music episode that we have. I think and that we, I also, we also have an, un, well, I say an unfair advantage. I right. think previously I would have agreed with you that, that it's like, well, there's probably nothing like that good until like the 1800s or, you know, something like that, you know? And I think if we would have just jumped straight into the 18 and 1900s, you know, then we probably would have still thought the same thing. I actually think that it's a huge advantage to us that we started from nothing. Yeah. And, and, and on a monthly basis, we're just looking and we're seeing where it's going, you know? So we, mm-hmm. like, we're we're starting to appreciate things more. Like, I don't think going into this, I would have, I think I would have been, like, um, the, the Timmy Pache and the Lament of Ariana. I think that I would have been able to tell you that Lament was better, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you why, you know? We're now coming through all of the all of these eras, I can tell you like, oh, the, the Timmy Pache like, is using like, kind of a first generation harmony, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it's using harmony in the context of just, like, multiple lines that are in the same key that sometimes just so happen to kind of line up or that you can kind of predict where they'll line up or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Counter melody mm-hmm. harmony. Mm-hmm then getting into opera where it's like, no, this is like what we understand as harmony. Now this is advanced, you know, multi-layered, like it, the jump is, and obviously my favorite song is the lament of Ariana as well. I think it's so extreme that I don't even think that it's fair that the lament of Ariana is even on the list. You know, it's, it's such wow. an outlier. It's just so it's, it's, it would be like comparing, um, it would be like comparing the dark ages church music to the Renaissance church music, you know, like it's such, it's just such a gigantic leap forward, which is insane that like it's, it is in the same era. So of course it is valid that it's there, but I think that speaks more to uh, Monteverde's genius that like in the same era, you know, in the same lifetime that he was able to take it from counter melody harmony to, you know, mm-hmm. opera, <laughs> like inventing opera pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think uh, every episode that we get closer to the modern era, uh, we understand how we got to the modern era more. And being able to pick up on 
you know, when in history did the idea of operatic harmony or, you know, chord extensions on purpose, you know, now I can be like, oh, you know, Monteverde invented chord extensions kind of, you know, like informally, but he or was the first to use them in a good context. And that's something that's really cool. But that's le- a less passionate um <laughs> less passionate final thoughts but i am excited to continue and i think it's good for everyone to kind of that's interested in music and that understands even a little bit of theory or is interested in why songs are good to kind of go through and and go through all the ancient music and just see how far you know music has come now and even in opera how far it's come yeah, yeah. i've I'm I'm got a bit of a different perspective from you guys because I do know pretty roughly where everything is going. I don't have the level of detail that I'm acquiring now through all of these episodes that we've already done. Um, but like, I wouldn't have thought like the way you guys are just like, oh, well, only when we get to the 18 and 1900s do things start to get interesting. I know about a lot of the crazy musical stuff we're going to experience even in the 16 and 1700s, but it's still really exciting every week. Like hearing these songs was like, I remember every, like even here doing the Catholic mass last month, it was just like uh, hearing in just going, wow, what yeah. incredible leap forward. And then hearing this and going, wow, yeah. what an incredible. And then <laughs> I feel, being... yeah, I feel that every week where it's just like, oh my gosh, we added, like, when was it that we added um, instruments? I was like, uh, we have the, instruments, the troubadours. Guys. We have freaking instruments again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh huh. More than one vocalist. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm listening to Lorfeo right now. I'm just like, oh God. <laughs> This is this is even because I mean you have the full orchestra playing and you have you have theme and variation and it's just it's it's getting even more intense. I remember the transition out of plain chant and I was just like, what an incredible innovation, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you have more than one musical idea happening at the same time. <laughs> Genius, yeah, genius <laughs> of your time. I think, yeah, there's. I'm we're discovering more and more. And I think this episode is almost like it's really dawning on us for the first time how important it is to not just jump into this time period. That the journey really allows you to appreciate everything you're listening to. Yeah, because if I just give some random person uh, lament of Ariana and say, you know, check out this great piece of music they listen to, I was just like, oh, I yeah. don't get it. But when you've you've taken this long, at times arduous journey through music history, now you get to this point and you're just like, this is the most beautiful piece of music I've ever heard. And it's only going to get better from here. We're I'm I'm really excited. If you guys are getting really excited about this, I'm I can't wait for the Baroque period. The Baroque period is is the first truly brilliant uh, era of music. 
And, it's and still, I feel like now I'll actually be able to appreciate it. Uh-huh. And it's not even still my favorite era. Like, we still don't even get to Mozart at that point. Right. So, um, I'm... This is This is proving to be, first off, way more fun than I thought it would be. I'm glad that you guys are enjoying it more than I expected you to. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, there was there was a fear when I started this. Uh, this this was going to be like, oh god, here we go, listening to all this old music, and it's turned out to be a really fun ride. And yeah. um, thank you, listeners, for those of you that enjoy these episodes. Um, thank you for continuing to tune in and listen. Um, we're gonna we're gonna keep doing this. It's and it's only gonna get more and more exciting as we go. If you guys like this episode, please hit the subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday morning, nine a.m. Central. Next week starts the beginning of a new month, which means another volume two. And um, this is one that I have planned to do several times, and for reasons kept pushing it back but it is finally time for us to do a volume two this is uh going to be a sequel to the third biggest episode we've ever done so it's 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 time that we finally uh return to this artist and also we're going to be approaching it in a very unique and special way so make sure that you guys tune in to see what we're going to be talking about and uh, I know I know Grant's going to be really excited. I am. Um, make sure that you hit us up on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. Every month we are doing an episode that is requested by you guys. So make sure that you are sending in your requests. And uh, make sure you check out those links in the episode description. One of them is going to take you to the Spotify playlist, which... After hearing these these glowing reviews, you guys surely have to have your interest peaked. Um, you got to get that sweet "My Bonnie Laughs She Smileth," <laughs> which I mean, I love "Lament of Ariana." Objectively, I have to say it's the best, but man, Bonnie just tugs at my heart. <laughs> it's because it's a pop song, dude. Yeah, it's it's yeah, because you're a, you like pop. Music. I do. It's a pop song. It just wants you to sing it. Yep. Singable melody. I think I, think I have to pick this as my favorite. Even though it's objectively I put it at fifth. I think it's it's this is the one that I just find myself going back to. Um so if you want to also enjoy the the fruitful um bounty of my Bonnie, then click on the link in the description to go to the Spotify playlist. And then there's that other link as well that will take you to our Patreon page where you can become a patron, get access to early and exclusive content. And that's all I got. We'll see you guys next week. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. Good music.